This recording may contain language and or content not suitable for children. Listener discretion is advised. Tonight on Joe Declassified Spec Ops, we are joined by the acclaimed animation historian Jim Sorensen, author of the upcoming Sunbow G.I. Joe Field Manual. The Declassified team, along with a couple guest hosts, talk with Jim about his books, his plans, and his process, restoring images, preserving icons over land and sea and air. Welcome to Joe Declassified Spec Ops. Hello, and welcome to the third episode of Joe Declassified Spec Ops. Uh, one more episode, and we don't have to settle on being a trilogy. Uh, if this is your first time joining us, we are a podcast that attempts to elevate the conversation of G.I. Joe by keeping one foot firm in G.I. Joe's history and origins and one foot on the gas so we can keep up or even sometimes be one step ahead of wherever it is G.I. Joe might be going next. It's a task for sure, but we're happy to have a go at it. So here we are. If you're not familiar with Joe Declassified, make sure you hit up the sites at joedeclassified.com and joedeclassified.com slash forum, uh, where you can download previous Joe Declassified newsletters, contribute to the conversation, and most likely see a few things you might not have seen before. Speaking of one foot in history and one foot on the gas, tonight we have a very special guest and even some guest hosts. But first, let's check in with this episode's Declassified team. I am Jire Viper, a.k.a. Gary Goggles. Also here tonight is uh, Mr. Kevin Watts. I'm here. Hi. <laughs> uh, also, Mr. James M. Kavanaugh, Jr. To all are one. And uh, Jared, Mr. Jamin Stone. I'm here, too. We are uh, also joined tonight uh, by two guest hosts, one of them very last minute, one of them uh, was specifically tapped for this episode. Uh, I'll start with him. I met our first guest host last year at JoeCon, and he's definitely one of the coolest guys I've ever met at a JoeCon, uh, although that's not saying much because I've only been to two. His ability to recall dialogue or plot points or specifics from not only comic books, uh, ranging from everything from G.I. Joe to X-Men to Avengers, his ability to recall that dialogue and whatnot is uh, amazing, but even more amazing to me is the the fact that he can also do it for uh, Transformers and G.I. Joe cartoons and animated films. A few weeks ago, a bunch of us got together to watch Transformers the movie on Skype, and his knowledge of the Transformers Sunbow universe was more than impressive, to say the least. Uh, Apparently, this talent also extends to the G.I. Joe Sunbow universe, so naturally, his name popped in my head when this episode started taking shape. Uh, Everyone, please welcome Eduardo M. Fryer. Hey, guys. Great to be here. What, James? So I think he, I think he hears all those voices in his head. <laughs> uh, welcome, Sorry, Eduardo. They speak to me. They make me write a list. <laughs> the day will come. <laughs> Great to have you, Ed. Oh, thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. Eduardo, why don't you tell us a little about yourself? Well, uh, I've been a Joe fan since it first started way back in '82. Uh, I collected the toys. Uh, I think my first one was Snake Eyes and the Ram Cycle. I had to stop collecting for a couple of years in the 90s, mainly because the parentals uh, told me, you're too old. But then once I started making my own money, I started collecting again and have not stopped since. Of all the things I've collected over the years, Masters of the Universe, G.I. Joe, Transformers, the various comic book-related toys, G.I. Joe is the only one that I am collecting regularly, religiously. All else, I'm either not collecting or I collect very sparingly. Also, you know, to show how much of a geek I am, I'm a huge comics fan. I'm a huge sci-fi movie fan. Uh, other than this podcast, I've also done another one called The Greatest Movie Ever, where I did a review of the original Clash of the Titans and Forbidden Planet. And as far as comic books, I've actually done some freelance work for uh, Marvel Comics, doing entries for their official handbook of the Marvel Universe. Nice. I, I love that handbook, man. I, I still have the, the, the issues of it from when I was younger, and I, I still read them all the time. That That's like, that's like one of my favorite things that marvel ever put out with those the, those handbooks to the marvel universe because they could just you could you could get lost in them like you could just yeah. sit there and read them for hours and hours have you picked up have you picked up any of the recent ones 
No, not on more recent ones. I haven't been in a comic store for a long time, uh, 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 unless, it's, unless it's at gunpoint. Uh, <laughs> no, I I, uh, I was only collecting GI Joe comics for a long time, and then when IDW got the license, I kind of backed off for a while because they were rebooting everything, and I just I just didn't have it in me to, to, to restart everything over again. But uh, but it but if they if there's a new you know run of the of the Marvel Universe handbooks out there, I'll I'll I would certainly be interested in in, in finding some of those. Hell yeah, they they restarted it back in '04, and it's been going since. Anyway, well, um, I think enough about enough about me and enough about derailing this into Marvel Universe. Uh, Gary, why don't we introduce the uh, the other guest host and our guest guest? Yes, our. Uh... Our other guest host was a, a last-minute uh, pull-in, although that's not speaking against him. That's speaking for him that uh, he was literally the first person I thought of uh, to, to, to jump in on this with us. Um, he's probably one of my, my, my best friends in the G.I. Joe community, one of the first people from the G.I. Joe community I ever met. And uh, he's actually one of the reasons I'm still around in this community at all. Um, so you can either thank him or hate him based on your, uh, your opinions I'm of blind. me. <laughs> uh, everyone, welcome Glenn Winkler, aka Barefoot Jedi, to the program. Hello. Hey, Glenn. Hello. Glad to have you. Uh, Glenn, you want to tell us a little about yourself? I. Uh, how long do we have? No, seriously, I, I'm an only child, so I'm very self-centered and talk about myself all the time. But anyway, um, I am. I've been enchanted by GI Joe since 1982. My first toy was actually a Christmas present, and it was an awesome one. It was the Sears Missile Command with a Mickey Cobra Commander. I, I got that was under the tree one year, and really, it was always Cobra that that attracted me. Not not the GI Joe team as a child. The only G.I. Joe toy, like G.I. Joe teen toy I ever had was a Sky Striker that I got at KB Toys for $10 because it was like on clearance or something. Everything else was was Cobra Army. As an adult, I started out as a Star Wars collector in the late 90s, and it was the Toys R Us Cobra Trooper six-pack of the Real American Hero molds that got me into collecting G.I. Joe as an adult, and I've, I've been here ever since. I'm also the, the Voltar guy. I've, I've picked that up in the last year or so, pick, uh, collecting Voltar-related merchandise. I never read the Marvel run of, of the comics until I was an adult. It was always the Sunbow cartoon that I associated with G.I. Joe. I was very familiar with it. Even as, as an adult, I, you know, I have the Rhino sets. Um, I was one of the ones who was emotionally devastated when they didn't finish season two. Destro was by far my favorite character, and I owe a lot of my vocabulary words to him. He was forced to wear a mask over his face for the rest of his life. Thank you, Glenn. It's good to have you. And uh, so that brings us to our special guest this evening. Essentially, the first guest we've had on a Joe Declassified podcast, uh, who wasn't um, also a co-host of the podcast that we were just sort of highlighting. You might recognize his name from the front page of most of the G.I. Joe forums, but you, if you're a Transformers fan, you might recognize his name from the Transformers world even more. Uh, everyone, welcome Mr. Jim Sorensen to the podcast. Hello. How are you doing, Jim? Hey. Hey, Jim. Greetings, Mr. Sorensen. Uh, it's very Jim. nice to be here. It's fantastic to have you. Uh, you're our very first guest, which uh, probably won't be a bragging right uh, after this episode is done. But for now, let's just pretend it is. Excellent. So, uh, Jim, why, before we uh, get to why you're here tonight, why don't we uh, talk a little about how you got here tonight, if you will, if that makes sense. How I got here. Well, I'm, I'm home. I'm doing this from home. So I pretty much just, you know, drove and parked <laughs> and walked up the stairs. So say there but in terms of i guess what i've done in the past i've um in terms of the professional work i've done i've written four transformers books and a number of articles for the transformers fan club magazine the uh, the first two books i wrote were on transformers animation models for the old generation one cartoon the first one was the sunbow universe and the second one was all of the different japanese anime that had come out in japan in the late 80s and early 90s and then a little bit more recently i wrote two guidebooks for Transformers Animated, which at the time was the current Transformers show on the air, where we managed to get 
almost every animation model that showed up across three seasons of the show into these two books and put a whole lot of commentary about it. The books were written mostly in universe, so the characters talked about each other and related their experience with the episodes. And we also went behind the scenes and talked about how the show was put together. I like to say that we literally got everything, including the kitchen sink in there, because we had a model of a kitchen sink that Rekgar had, I think, found in a, in a dumpster or in a garbage barge or something that we, we managed to get into the book. So that was a no, lot that, of fun. Awesome. I love it. Awesome. All right. Well, uh, then why don't you uh, tell us why you're here tonight, Jim? Well, I'm here tonight to promote the new project I'm working on, which is not a Transformers book, but in fact on G.I. Joe. So just as the first book I did ever was on the Sunbow animation models for Transformers Generation 1, this book is going to be covering the Sunbow animation models for G.I. Joe. And I'm really excited to get into this new aspect of the Sunbow universe and to work with the Joe fans collaboratively and then hopefully they'll like the book and then we can have a dialogue going about that. No, absolutely. No, it sounds great. When, uh, when is the projected release of the, of the book? The book's going to be out this summer. Okay, and this is through IDW, correct? That's correct. Excellent. Uh, how many pages? We're looking at about 208 right now, which is the same as the first two uh, books that I did with Transformers. Wow. Okay. A lot of fans in the G.I. Joe community um, for a long time have been howling for like a G.I. Joe packaging art type book, like a, ta- like a coffee table book, um, and a lot of people are saying that your book is going to be the first step, or rather the closest the hobby might have ever gotten to, or simply the closest yet to something like that, um, so you've already got that demographic locked in uh, as for, for people who consider your book a must-buy. Speaking for myself, uh, the minute that I saw the ARC book come out, the first ARC book, I was like, there has to be one for G.I. Joe. There has to be one. So when I first heard that Jim was doing this book, I was like, finally, thank you. (laughs) That's incredibly flattering. And I I have to say, going back to what you were saying, Gary, that if you are interested in G.I. Joe art books, I would definitely urge you to to pick this up and bring it home and buy it and love it and let IDW know and let Hasbro know that this is the sort of thing that you like to buy. But the the best way you can do it is to vote with your wallets because they're, they're certainly going to be looking at the sales on this to see if maybe other similar volumes would make economic sense. Well, how did you uh, align yourself with IDW? Well, um, I, I've, I've always been a huge Transformers guy. I mean, pretty much 1984, when I was eight years old, I saw the commercial with Optimus Prime barreling down the highway, and I said, oh, my God, I, I love this. I am going to buy all those toys and apparently devote most of the rest of my life to working with the property. I didn't quite know that at the time. I didn't have that much self-knowledge at eight. But I I never really got out of Transformers. And one of the aspects that I really enjoyed collecting was the the animation models. I I found some posted on the internet from a Japanese laser disc. I didn't really even know what they were. I just thought that these stark black and white designs were really cool. And all the text was Japanese, so I didn't even really know what the context was. So I started printing those out and saving those and finding more. And after a few years of that, I had quite a large collection, including one of the Marvel Comics... Bibles of Transformers. So I, I had quite a lot of stuff that, as far as I know, had never been published. Now, certainly most of it had never been published in this country, but a lot of it had never been published at all. So I, I had this urge, this I almost compulsion to share it with the world. And I guess I could have thrown it up on a website or, or printed it up as a fanzine or something, but I was ambitious. So I, I went to IDW and I pitched them the idea of doing a you know an enormous book of black and white artwork, which in retrospect, I think was a really hard sell. I'm a little surprised they bought it. And the first year I pitched to them, they looked at it and they said, no. So then I went back and I I spoke to a friend of mine who was the art director at the Intrepid Museum in New York, which of course is where one of the, I think the first Joe convention was held. Is that correct? Uh, If not the first, one of the first, yes, it was on the Intrepid. And uh, he was the art director there. So he and I got together and we worked on the pitch and we got uh, Don Figueroa, who is a really big name in Transformers art, to do a cover for us on spec because I bought some pieces from him and then was a little friendly with him. And with the new cover and and, and Bill's more artistic eye, uh, we repitched it to IDW. And this time they, they thought, okay, fine, we'll give it a shot. And the sales were quite strong, so they did the second volume, and then we did two more, and now we're 
coming along to do it with G.I. Joe. I think that you are tapping into something that, um, like I said before, is similar to what people have been excited for. I think that you'll also grab people that, while they might not necessarily be fans of the Sunbow cartoon as is, um, that doesn't really detract from their appreciation, A, from G.I. Joe, B, G.I. Joe art, and C, I mean, you can, you know, I'm watching Sunbow on mute right now, and I'm probably enjoying it a lot more than I would if there was actually sound on it. So, and I, I've, I'm, of course, speaking to the some of the, the campy stuff and the silly stuff. Um, so I, I, I'm just going to go on a limb and say you're not going to have trouble selling this book. Um, uh, I think the other thing to remember is that while these designs were created for the Sunbow cartoon, they were also used as reference for the comic book. So even if you're only a Joe comic fan, these documents are still, I think, relevant to you. It's, it's not the perspective or the organization that we're using in the book, but they're still, I think, relevant documents and interesting articles. Oh, no. Jim, I, <clears throat> Jim, I have a kind of a, 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 a stupid question. Um, I, I remember as a kid, now I, I, I watch Sunbow pretty regularly, but I also remember all of the commercials and whatnot that had very Sunbowish animation. Were those created in conjunction with Sunbow? Were those, I mean, when, you, when you're mentioning, you know, things like uh, uh, some of these sheets would be used in other areas, was Sunbow the, the kind of what things would go to first as proving ground? Like, would, would concepts and, and, and designs and whatnot go, go to Sunbow first? Well, it's, it's an interesting question, and actually, you're spot on when you say that the commercials had a very Sunbow-esque feel to them. The commercials were done by Sunbow. In fact, Sunbow started as the animation house of the Griffin Bacall ad agency. So before there were G.I. Joe cartoons, there were G.I. Joe commercials in that style. So really, the commercials came first. So I guess it would almost be more proper to say that the cartoon was done in the style of the commercials, although the specifics of the animation models were, were tweaked a bit from the very earliest commercials to the uh, to the what was finally used in the show. Well, what I find interesting about that is, is I mean, I, I have very direct memories of of some of the some of the commercials that would say, you know. Uh, soon to be seen in Marvel Comics, and they would always predate some of the stuff seen in Sunbow. So it, so it's almost like the development of the Sunbow versions versus something that would be in the comic, and then almost relating it back to some of the commercials. I mean, the, the only way that I could really define what I'm trying to say is I, I specifically remember seeing the 1986 Roadblock figure before it was in Arise for Pentor Arise, I remember seeing it in a commercial for that, that ended up being, you know, read this in Marvel Comics. But but at the time, I also remember kind of like everything being thrown together, like like you know, here's a commercial for all of the toys. This is what you can go buy right now, and while you're at it, go pick up the Marvel Comics. Yeah, well, I think the thing to remember is that the lead time necessary to create a cartoon is a lot longer than the lead time necessary to create a commercial or a comic. So it makes sense that you would have seen the designs in the commercial before you actually see them show up in the television show. Nice. And actually, it's a bit of funny trivia, but do you know why they had commercials for the Marvel Comics G.I. Joe book? I mean, how often do you remember seeing a commercial for a comic book growing up in the 80s? I mean, it was almost never. But the reason that they did that was because they were not allowed by, by Congress to have too much animation in a commercial for toys. So what they did was they didn't do a commercial for toys. They did a commercial for a comic. But when they're doing the commercial for the comic, they would say, Night Raven, Night Raven, and then push effectively, if not the toy, the idealized version of the toy that shows up in the comic book. But that's why they had those commercials. Yeah, I'm, a, I'm actually currently uh, finally jumped in to start reading uh, Toy Wars. And I'm pretty sure that was on like the last page I actually read when uh, when they're talking about, well, that. that That's why they jumped in with the comics and got away with it uh, for doing the commercials. And at the time, it was considered absolutely groundbreaking. There was some kind of crazy shit going on back then where where I, I have some specific memory of, of uh, Masters of the Universe. 
TV series was some kind of new thing where they weren't previously allowed to do any type of TV program that would advertise a toy line. And and so so I, I kind of remember that whenever whenever the change came in, it was like Masters of the Universe was the was the like wow this is the new you know basically a twenty two minute advertisement for a toy line, and and that's what opened the door for everything that we saw in the eighties. Which of course led to you know all the Sunbow animation for GI Joe, Transformers, Gem, etc. And that's why they had the PSAs in Masters of the Universe, and then they copied that with GI Joe was because they were trying to duck criticism that there was no artistic or social merit for the show. Was that the specific situation? Like it, it, it had to be a creative outlet. Like it, it couldn't be like I, I, I guess basically it was they weren't allowed to do a a a a 22-minute commercial for the toys. A 22-minute commercial saying, hey, kids, go bug your parents to come to the toy store and buy this stuff. Like, they had to have something of, of an educational nature or something thrown in. Oh, I don't know if, if it specifically had to be educational, but I do know that when they changed the laws that you know to allow shows based on toy lines, there was concern, certainly among the, um, the people creating the shows, that that might get rolled back if they pushed the envelope too far. But I don't know if there was a specific uh, bit of legislation that said that they had to have artistic merit. Hey, Glenn, did we completely skip over everything you wanted to touch on? Yes. I mean, we can segue any way you want. That's the beauty of editing. I've been editing laughs in to make myself sound funnier every episode. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. something i wanted to expand on you were mentioning the uh the commercials for the comics i remember the gi joe commercials i do know transformers did it at least twice uh and i was always surprised that transformers didn't do it more because i remember they had a commercial for the first issue and for the debut of the pretenders but i don't remember them doing any more may i interject something on that yeah go ahead if I'm not mistaken, the G.I. Joe comic books were much more successful than the Transformers Marvel comic books, but I could be very mistaken on that. That, like, at the time that in in the mid-1980s, G.I. Joe was one of Marvel's more popular books, and I don't think the Transformers book ever caught on quite like that, so that may, that may be the reason why they didn't go that route. I, I don't know. That might have uh, played a factor, and this is just speculation. I don't have any specific knowledge here, but the whole point of doing the commercial for the comics was so that they could uh, have animation in the, or a lot of animation as opposed to just two or three seconds of animation with transformers i suspect they wanted to show the actual toys a bit more because the whole gimmick of transformers is that they change from one to the other and i think they wanted to show that with the actual physical toys but it's just speculation hey jim i just have a quick question about the actual creation process for the models now i know that um there was a transformers bible uh, for the animation, was there one for GI Joe as well? Uh, yeah, almost certainly there would be one for GI Joe. It's not something I've come across, although I'd certainly be very interested to see it. And if I were to come across one, it would probably help, and parts of it would find its way into what I'm working on now. What would you expect to see in a GI Joe animation bible? Well, you'd expect to have the the full Larry Hama profiles for all of the characters, most of which would have wound up in order of battle, but there be a little bit more on, on some of the characters, especially the early ones, along with probably an animation model turnaround and you know, the, on the character side. And then there'd probably also be some notes about what the um, what the parameters of the show are, what the main settings are. So they'd probably talk about the Terradrome and the Joe headquarters. And they'd have the rules, you know, you're not allowed to have too much sexual innuendo, you're not allowed to show a weapon hitting someone, and things like that. So for, for some of our listeners who uh, who might not be too familiar with the term, uh, Kevin, could you tell us really quickly about uh, G.I. Joe Bibles and sort of what they are? Or I guess toy Bibles in general, brand Bibles? Well, a, a Bible is kind of a generic term. I mean, obviously it's 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 normally affiliated with a more religious book, but in terms of, of the toy industry, uh, the, the term Bible would just be used for a, a collection of relatable material, a collection of, of artwork, uh, uh, 
various sources of literary uh, indexes and, and whatnot. Something that so if if a if uh, someone like let's just say Sunbow, since that's what we're talking about now, if they needed reference material for specific characters, specific teams, specific situations or whatever, they could refer to a brand Bible where they could go in and say, all right, so this character does this, this character looks like this, this character acts like this, you know, but it would also be relatable to uh, marketing where if there was a situation where a licensee needed a specific image that they would feel would sell a product or something. There, there are uh, licensee Bibles with uh, black and white artwork for for situations where, again, you know, Sunbow, animation, uh, or other literary things like uh, children's books or whatnot, they would all be given a specific marketing tool that's referred to as a Bible that would have the information that they need to relate the characters and situations uh, according to what Hasbro would like to see. Uh, but just to clarify what I was saying earlier, while I don't actually have something called the G.I. Joe Bible with all that information packaged together, I certainly have many of the disparate parts that would have made up a G.I. Joe Bible, including certainly all the animation models I could wish for and, and some of the writer's guide material. So, uh, Jim, was there a particular artist that developed this, the Sunbow style as far as how the, the characters looked? I mean, I know with the Renegades uh, cartoon, they had uh, Clement. Was there a certain artist that did that? Yeah, there was. Uh, there, there were many designers who created the character models, but the, the lead character designer and effectively the art director on G.I. Joe was Russ Heath. And if you don't know that name and you're a nerd, you probably should know that name because he's been involved in comic books since about World War II. Uh, Sergeant Rock was his, and he's been involved in, in war and cowboy and Indian comics pretty much forever. He's worked at Marvel, he's worked at DC, he did, I think, a Superman daily newspaper strip and a Lone Ranger daily newspaper strip. So it's really impressive that they got him to do the G.I. Joe character designs. And certainly incredibly appropriate given his background and his love of military design. I've had the chance to work with him in the course of putting this book together. It turns out he only lives about five minutes away from where I live. So he's, he's invited me over to his house a few times and I've shown him the book and he's actually going to be writing the foreword to the, uh, the G.I. Joe Field Manual, which is the name of the animation model book, which I probably should have mentioned earlier. That's fantastic. Now, did he did he ever talk about the process he went through when, you know, say he would get whatever artwork came from Hasbro, how he would translate that to, you know, obviously the animation designs are somewhat simplistic just based on the practicality of they have to be drawn over and over again? Well, I, I had asked him that question. Unfortunately, it wasn't something he particularly remembered. Uh, he had done you know, obviously quite a lot of work in addition to G.I. Joe, so he, he didn't have specific insight into that question. Okay. Do you have any information on how the models were practically applied by the animators? And I'm assuming that that took place overseas? Yeah, most of the animation for G.I. Joe was done overseas. Uh, it, it's, it happens more or less the way you would expect. So the original model is drawn, and then... It would be facts. So the reason that they're all in black and white, and the book's in black and white, is because, you know, back in the 80s when they were transferring these models around, they would mostly be done by facsimile. So nowadays most models, are, or quite a lot of models, are done in color because it's very easy to scan them and, and send them electronically. But, well, I guess fax is electronically, but, but send them via, the, via computer. So, but, but back in the day, it would just be too costly to FedEx around color model sheets. So they would just do it in black and white. And then these black and white model sheets, once they were ultimately approved by Hasbro, which sometimes they wouldn't, sometimes they'd have minor revisions, sometimes they'd have major revisions, and they'd have to go back and change them. But once they were finally approved, then those models would go overseas with the storyboards, and the animators, you know, the actual people drawing each frame would, would have those character turnarounds to, to look at while they were drawing. And not every character would have a full set of models. You know, somebody like the Baroness would have you know, a front and a back and a whole lot of headshots to show emotion. So they'd be pretty, if they wanted to, to use that character, it'd be pretty easy for them to keep her on model. 
but some characters might only have a front. Some characters might have a front and a back, but they might not have a side, which you know might be relevant in a specific scene. And then the animators would just have to do their best and fake it. Jim, when you see uh, odd occurrences in, in the animation where you see something that doesn't look quite right, do you think that would be attributed to uh, incomplete reference material on the Hasbro side to Sunbow? Uh, that's certainly one possibility. I'm thinking of a specific episode, The Spy Who Rooked Me, where they only had the front of the car drawn. So every time you see the car, the back of the car, it looks a little bit different because it was probably a completely different person drawing the car just looking at the front and not knowing exactly what the car would look like from the back. So uh, certainly that would happen sometimes. But sometimes, even with adequate reference material, there would be mistakes. I mean, one of the reasons that the animation industries has developed the way it is is because it's it's a time-consuming process to animate by hand. So you can have a lot of motion and simple designs. That would be something like you know old-style Disney, Warner Brothers, Batman the Animated Series. If you look at those designs, they're fairly streamlined. There's not a whole lot to them. They're, they're really beautiful, but they're simple. So you can have the characters be very dynamic and move quite a lot and... and do it without having too many mistakes and having it take too long or be too expensive. Or you can go more sort of the Japanese style where you have very, very detailed designs, but you cheat as much as you can to avoid movement, if you can. And not that there's no movement, obviously there is, but you'll have more scenes of talking heads, you'll have more sort of slow pans across a beautiful painting, things like that. With Sumbo, they really tried to have it all. They tried to have a very dynamic active cartoon and very detailed designs and what happened is and, and they didn't have generally speaking feature budgets to do it with so you had a lot of mistakes awesome jim thanks for expanding on that that's exactly what i was looking for as far as i, I have again specific memories of watching sunbow animation as an adult where as a kid everything you don't think anything of it you don't have that sophisticated memory where, you know, if something skips a frame, it really bothers you. But then, you know, as an adult, I go back and I try to look at these things and I think like, wow, that just, you know, jumped three frames for something that probably should have been five seconds worth of animation. You know, so or, or, or something, you know, kind of doesn't look quite right. So it, it's just an interesting history to, to, to try to piece together after the fact. I have a, a couple of questions about the uh, the organization of the book. Does it does it focus on like chronologically Sunbow beginning with the the miniseries, the Mass Device, then Revenge of Cobra, then Pyramid of Darkness, then the full season, then Arise Serpentor's Arise in the second season, or does it focus on characters like? Uh, let's say Duke and Cobra Commander and Destro, et, et cetera, or is it organized in a, in a different way? It's more along the lines of, of what you said at first. So you, because I, I'm focusing on, on the Sunbow uh, aspect of it, it made sense for me to go in, in the same order that they did. So the first two chapters are going to be about a Real American Hero miniseries, the Mass Device, you know, the Joes and the Cobras, and then sort of so on and so forth in that way. Okay. And um, we're going to go... You know, within within like say chapter one, the the Joes from that. You know, we'll we'll start with the characters, and then we'll have the vehicles, and then sort of the the guests. Does the book address changes like Covergirl looks very different? Her outfit, her hair color in the mass device, she's a blonde, and then later she appears more like she did in her action figure. She's a redhead. She's got the jacket. Uh, as well as things like in the mass device, you have sort of prototype vehicles like the shark uh, and the water moccasin that appear in, uh, like the water moccasin appears in one scene that showed up later in 1984 in, in, in their toy form. And how like the, the vehicles that Cobra uses early on developed into toys later. Uh, yeah, we'll be, we'll be covering those. I, I don't have every single model that I'd like, but for the most part, if a character has more than one design or if a vehicle had an earlier version of it, then yeah, we'll be that'll be showing up in the book. Okay. Okay, Jim, for the podcast, you supplied uh, a couple of images of Duke that looks like they're being used for character reference. 
Uh, I actually had a question about one of the images you sent. Uh, it looks like the name Hawk has been written and then crossed out and then the name Duke put in. Does this mean that uh, originally that design was supposed to be Hawk or was, did somebody like make a mistake? I, I believe that originally that design was going to be a character called Hawk. Presumably, um, at some point, Hasbro decided that rather than updating the figure Hawk from 82, they were going to be you know, having this figure be a, a brand new character, and they called it Duke. But early solicitation material for you know, to, to try and interest uh, television stations in the, the first G.I. Joe miniseries talked about how Hawk and Scarlet were going to save the day from Destro and Cobra Commander. That's interesting. I always wondered, you know, why in the cartoon, you know, Hawk in the comics was established as the leader of G.I. Joe and the, you know, blonde, blue-eyed leader archetype, and then he's nowhere in Sunbow until 1986, and he's a brunette. That's not technically true. Uh, if you remember, we were saying that the Sunbow commercials came first, and there, sure enough, are Hawk commercial designs. Oh, well, the, the commercials, yes, but like in the actual episodes, he he doesn't appear as a character, as far as I know, until until eighty six. Oh, you're, you're right about that. They did animate um, him. I remember him from the commercial. Uh, yeah, yeah. He, he never shows up in the show until until season two. But but if if you are looking at the commercials, then yeah, he did show up there. That brings up another point that I wanted to ask. Uh, the book, is it going to be just the Sunbow TV cartoon stuff, or are you going to touch any of the commercials? I'm not 100% sure about that yet. I'm, I'm still in the process of putting together uh, the book, and I'm not sure how much room I have. As far as I'm concerned, the commercials are in scope, but they're a lesser priority than the show. Okay. And another thing I was wondering with... If we could uh, touch on the ARC book that you uh, that was the first book you did with the Transformer models, what really attracted my attention is you have a couple of characters who did not show up in the animated series. Like, I think you had uh, the Jumpstarters, Topspin, and Twin Twist. Are there any characters who did not get any, uh, any time on the animated series? Would those models be showing up? With G.I. Joe, I haven't found any models that haven't been used at all, as far as I can tell. Um, I, I have some models from the later commercials, and those are so dense that, you know, it, you know the, the characters show up for maybe five or six frames. So, you know, they're there, but they're, you know, blink and you miss them. Uh, but as far as I can tell, every model I have has actually been used, with the exception of models that were revised. So I have things like, um, you know, there's an episode where Zorana disguises herself as a Chinese dancer, and the actual model that gets used is this sort of flamboyant, uh, you know, her with chopsticks in her hair and a dragon tattoo on her arm, and it looks great. But there's another design I have of that that shows her as a much more simple sort of, you know, loud peasant girl, and uh, I, I, I probably won't actually have room for that specific example, but that's the sort of thing I have where I'll have a design that didn't show up. But as far as I can remember, everything I have either was used at some point, maybe not in the cartoon, maybe in a commercial, maybe in a comic or something. I've read things on the internet about uh, the It Never Came to Pass, the Sunbow Season 3 which was supposed to have had, like, this organization called The Coil, led by Tomax and Zaymont, that was, like, a sequel to the movie. Did you come across anything referencing Sunbow's, just, I guess, ideas or plans if they had continued with the G.I. Joe animation after the 1987 movie? I have not. Um, I've, I've read some of that in interviews, but in terms of actual documentation, no. I tend to doubt that any designs would have been made up for that, aside from you know maybe something like a, a doodle on the back of a, a napkin that Buzz Dixon might have done, but certainly nothing formal, nothing that would have involved Rusty. So any any uh, documentation you have for Sunbow, it doesn't go past, say, 1987? Uh, I have some animation models from the commercials from as late as 88 or 89, but that's about Ooh. how it goes. But you know what's what's odd to me is that with you know normally when you're doing historical research, which is basically what this is, it's easier as you get 
more recent. But with G.I. Joe, that's absolutely not the case. For G.I. Joe, the stuff that seems the easiest to find is the stuff from the mass device, the stuff from the Revenge of Cobra. You know, season one's not so hard, season two's not so hard. The movie has been quite elusive, and I'm really looking, you know, hopefully to connect with collectors, model collectors, and paperwork collectors who have movie designs, because I've only got about half of those. And from the commercials, I probably only have about a third. So if for some reason, the, the more close to the present I get, the harder it is to find. That would reverse at some point. For instance, if we were to you know try and do a book about Resolute or Renegades, it would be trivially easy, because all that exists on hard drives. But for something like Sergeant Savage, I wouldn't really know where to look, and, and nobody that I've spoken to on the on the fan side, and I've spoken to quite a lot of fans who have this sort of material, has brought it up. You know, all this talk about animation cells and later animation cells, if this first book does really well, uh, would you do a book a la, you did the arc two for arc one, where you covered the Japanese stuff, would you do a book that would cover uh, whatever you could find of DIC or Sergeant Savage, or maybe even going so far as to cover Sigma-6, the uh, the CGI stuff, and uh, maybe Resolute and Renegades. I would say that I'd, I'd love to stick with the Joe-verse. I don't think a book just on Deke would be particularly marketable, and it's not something I'm all that interested in. If it was one or the other, I could probably push it, but I think with both, it, there's not much point. That said, since Deke is in continuity with Sunbow, I might have some Deke models in this book. Uh, again, it depends on, on how much space I wind up having. But uh, I, I would think that the, the next logical place for me to go would either be Resolute or Renegades, or, or maybe both. And the nice thing there is, instead of being a black and white book, they'd probably wind up being in color. Resolute, uh, I'm sorry, Renegades, well, they, they both be a lot of fun. Resolute, of course, is just brilliant, and it's, it's a very small story. I mean, it's got a big scope, but it's not very long. So there aren't all that many designs. I don't think I'd get a 200-page book out of it, but you could probably do a really nice 64-page high-format comic for that. But Renegades was a full season. Yeah, I could probably do a, a full book on that. And I, and I worked with Marty Eisenberg, who was the head writer on Renegades, when I was working on Transformers Animated. So he knows how I think, and we work well together. So I'd probably, if I were to do Renegades, do sort of what I did with Animated, and maybe expand the universe a little bit you know with with, with what i'm doing with the the gi joe the, you know the the old real american hero stuff i'm really just documenting what's already there but with renegades you know assuming marty would be amenable to it i could probably you know a, a character that only showed up in the cameo i could probably write out a full bio for him things like that which would be a lot so okay so instead of a uh, so instead of say the allspark almanac maybe something like uh renegades data files or something like that yeah exactly well, well, that would certainly be appropriate because we've been led to believe that Renegades had a, I mean, I don't want to say a lot more planned, but there was definitely a lot of details that may have been fleshed out over whether it was an extension of Steve's one or a completely new, you know, second season that, that we would have been led to believe would, would come out. To, to be honest, the end of Renegades was was really sad. I mean, it was, it was such a great series. They did a great job, and to see it kind of end after one season and then them throw that that bizarre, you know, Duke uh, dream sequence up over it, it, it was almost like, you know, this, this, was, this, this was the G.I. Joe they could have really kept going with, and they didn't. So if you've got the connections to see, like, okay, this might have been what came next with Renegades, although there has been some fan speculation and information lately that, that Renegades might keep going at some point, being that it's a movie year, everything's kind of up in the air. You never know what Paramount's going to want. I mean, do, do you have any idea that maybe there's something from the Renegades universe that you could kind of let us in on now? Uh, well, I, I, there's nothing I can share with you about where Renegades was going now, but I will say that when I worked on the AllSpark Almanac 2, which covered the third season of Transformers Animated, we had about eight pages devoted to what would have been season four, including some overall story synopses uh, and some designs and even some toy prototypes. So I, I don't know how much of that exists for Renegades, 
Um, so I couldn't, certainly couldn't promise that it would be there, but I have to imagine that Marty at least had a pretty good idea of what he wanted to accomplish in season two, and, and some of that I'd try and get into the book. This task of creating a book full of pictures might seem uh, might seem really easy to uh, the average onlooker, um, you know, as far as, you know, oh, here's some images, scan them, put them in a book. But that, that wasn't the case with, with what you had to go through for some of these. Uh, why don't you tell us a bit about the, um, I don't know, the troubleshooting and the kinks and uh, what you sort of had to go through to put this book together, as I'm sure it wasn't just a matter of, here's a picture, put it in the book. Oh, no, nothing that simple. Um, well, I guess the first hurdle was just gathering up the material. You know, it's not something that Hasbro really saved. Sunbow isn't really around anymore, so I can't talk to them. So pretty much every image in the book has come to me uh, by way of fans or, you know, in some cases by way of, of you know, Russ Heath, who saved some of the original material. You know, not in an official capacity, just just in his portfolio or, or you know, in, in his personal art archives. So you know, just finding it is is a pretty big challenge. I remember looking a few years back online, maybe five or six years ago, thinking, oh, what what GI Joe animation models are out there, and there was almost nothing. There were a couple of cells that were posted here and there, so it, that was tricky. But then you know, once you find the artwork, it's usually it's not as simple as just scanning it in and, and, and dropping them onto the page because I, I think I mentioned before that the reason that they're in black and white was so you could fax them around. Well, they were not treated as artwork, these designs. They were treated as these production pieces that were a necessary component in the assembly line that ultimately results in a cartoon or an animated commercial. So they would be photocopied, folded, mailed, Xeroxed, so the lines would tend to sort of drop out over time, replicative fading. And you know, when you're when you're putting it into a book, you can't have a, an image that's you know really spotty or you know has a big coffee stain on it or anything. And then and, and you laugh, but you know you get these sort of stains and fades and you know ink smears all the time. So you'd have to go you know, and, and I'm still working with with uh, Bill Forster on this project. You know, they, I mentioned him earlier; he was the art director at the Intrepid. Uh, so you know, the two of us will go into these images and clean them up by hand, which is a fairly laborious process. You know, some of them are better than others, certainly. But, you know, I'd say the majority of them are fairly old, fairly faded. And then, you know, once you have them, you have to you know, cut them out, which, because the lines tend not to connect, is, you know, not necessarily a quick process. It's not just, you know, a magic wand in Photoshop. Usually you have to go through and, and, and treat that by hand. And then you lay them all on the page, and you want each page to look appealing, too. So... You know, you, you could, and people have, you know, written huge books on how to lay something out and, and make it look physically appealing. But I, I think that's one of the interesting aspects for me, too, is to, you know, when you're doing a page of, you know, the Sky Striker and you have, you know, I don't know, 18 or, or 15 images of the Sky Striker, how do you arrange them so that they're pleasing to the eye, so that there's a certain amount of flow, so that there's enough white space that each image pops? But not so much that the page looks empty, which you know when you have a lot isn't isn't a big problem. But for somebody, you know, like Thunder or Copperhead, where I only have two images, a front and a back, you know, you have to still fill the page with those two images and make them look appealing. So how do you how do you do that? You know, and then then that's I, one of the things that I find interesting and challenging, and also creatively very satisfying. Okay, um, Jim, actually, uh, something that. Your story reminds me of, especially having to track this stuff down, having to find something that uh, hasn't been marked with coffee stains or looks unpresentable. Uh, one of my nerdly leanings, in fact, actually, if anybody's seen my Facebook page, it sometimes becomes painfully obvious. I'm a huge fan of the British series Doctor Who. Oh, and I love Doctor Who. Oh, you're my friend for life now. Well, no, I mean, have you seen the pictures of me floating around the internet with the fez? Oh, you are so my friend now. I'm a huge fan of the fourth Doctor. But anyway, one of the problems of Doctor Who fans, you're probably familiar with this, is the fact that a lot of the 60s episodes no longer exist because the BBC didn't think about saving tapes and a bunch of them were destroyed. So I kind of wonder, I kind of wonder, though, if uh, if there's a problem uh, with this, with maybe some Sunbow stuff or maybe some of the uh, the animation models. Well, certainly there's a lot of animation models out there that I haven't yet tracked down. Now, I like to think that they're not destroyed, that someone somewhere out there 
as copies, but I haven't found them yet. And this is certainly going to be the definitive work of animation models. So, you know, at this point, if I don't find it, in, in, a, in a sense, it's not going to exist. I mean, that's not to say that if somebody doesn't find it later, you couldn't put it up on a website, and if you're nice, you could send a copy to Hasbro, and then they could put it in their archives. But I think this is going to be the place where, certainly the first place that most people look for G.I. Joe animation models. So I'm, I'm hoping that I can track down at least the bare essentials before the book comes out. So I, you know, again, if, if anybody listening out there has or knows someone who collects you know, the, the black and white animation model paperwork or animation model cells and has any lead on, you know, incidental characters or I, I'm not as strong. I have all the main characters, but incidentals I'm a little weaker on or material from the Sunbow commercials, especially the later ones, or even movie material. I, I don't have Big Law and I want it. I don't have Taurus or Mercer and I want them. So, uh, and if, if I find them, they'll be in the book. But if I don't, they won't. So, uh, you know, if, if you're listening and you know someone or you have them, definitely drop me a line at transformersthearc at yahoo.com. Well, we've, we've, we've been talking about this book, obviously, uh, and uh, what we haven't really touched on is uh, have, you, have you sort of decided on a cover for the book? And uh, does this book have a working title that you're allowed to share with us? The working title for the book is the G.I. Joe Field Manual, and we've submitted a cover idea to IDW. We're waiting to hear if they're going to approve it. Awesome. Um, was it was obviously I'm not asking you to share with us what the cover is, but uh, was was that sort of a, a cut and dry like, hey, I have this great idea. Middle of the night, you wake up in a sweat, and you're like, that's it. Or did you kind of uh, did you do a lot of playing around with the cover? I mean, just from a marketing standpoint, the cover is what's going to grab the people who don't know about the book. We Bill and I spent a lot of time going back and forth talking about what the cover needs to be, what it should be. You know, I mean, one idea is to do something like a collage of, of the actual images, but we didn't really want a, a black and white cover. But we also didn't want a cover that would be misleading. You know, we wanted something that, you know, where the characters would be on model. Uh, and we wanted something that thematically, at least, sort of references the ideas of design, information, that sort of thing. So we, we, we did a lot of brainstorming, and we eventually sort of narrowed in on an idea that we thought, are, you know, is dynamic, is exciting, has cool characters on it, you know, from both teams, but also thematically touches on the idea of design, and, you know, uh, hopefully Hasbro and IDW see it the same way. Speaking of uh, this, this wonderful book of yours, Transformer fans and G.I. Joe fans, uh, let's be honest, they uh, whether whether either side wants to admit it, we're sort of more connected than not. I know if Gary Godso was here, he wouldn't want to hear this and would have a lot to say about it because he doesn't like crossovers. But what's your take on the connection or even lack of connection between Transformers and G.I. Joe? I don't necessarily mean just the fan base. I just mean in general. Um, and can you speak to your experience at all, uh, considering you've uh, done so many Transformers books and now you're jumping into G.I. Joe? Uh, what sort of separates the two and what sort of brings them together? And then sort of a second mini question to that is, do you think Transformers as a cartoon sort of had it easier being big and flashy and robots flying and G.I. Joe was sort of, uh, you know, here's a bunch of these sort of eccentric characters and these sort of uh, sometimes even very similar characters thrown in together? Okay, um, two pretty interesting questions. Let me Let me start with the second one. I think that the... Transformers cartoon definitely had a much easier job because I think it's easier to suspend your disbelief when you're talking about ancient alien robots. The idea that they might have, you know, strange or peculiar personalities seems much less odd than the idea that they exist in the first place. So just by showing up to watch a Transformers cartoon, you know, assuming that you're a reasonable person, if you're watching a Transformers cartoon, you're accepting that alien robots from another planet who are millions of years old might be having a civil war on Earth and look like cars and trucks and tape cassettes. So if you're willing to accept that, yeah, it's not such a stretch to think that one of them might be really into sports and one of them might speak only in rhyme. The idea that U.S. military soldiers might do that, I think, is a little bit more far-fetched. Um, Despite the, not despite the fact, because of the fact that G.I. Joe is a much more grounded concept. The idea of a unit of special forces fighting against terrorists, I think, is a very easy thing to relate to. 
But because they didn't make it a military procedural, because they made it more of a, a science fiction adventure, yeah, it's a little bit harder, I think, uh, a story to accept. And of course, that it wasn't necessary that they went in that direction. That's just the direction they chose to go. The Larry Hama comics, while still not really, strictly speaking, being a military procedural, I think focused more on uh, realistic, I guess is the best word, realistic aspects of the story. So, And I think that's one of the reasons why the Joe comics have proved a little bit more enduring in the minds of, of current-day Joe fans than the, the Joe Sunbill cartoon did, which is the exact opposite of the case with the Transformers. Now, your first question uh, on what sort of brings the universes together and what separates them. When I was writing the Transformers books, I included these hidden little Easter eggs and sort of funny alien languages that fans, if they were so inclined, could translate. And one of them was uh, somebody asking an ancient robot who sees across multiple realities if G.I. Joe and Transformers were in the same universe, and that character said that they were. So that might give you some ideas as to how I think they're connected. I, th I think that the writers of the cartoon went out of their way to show that the universes were connected, and I, I saw no reason to dispute that. It, it, they seem certainly tonally and thematically very similar. Um, cool. oh, and then, of course, there have been actual crossovers in the comics, and then even in the cartoons. I mean, you know, Old Snake showed up in Transformers, Flint as a mirage showed up in Transformers. Uh, Marissa Fairborn was supposed to be Flint's daughter. Um, an October Guard showed up in Transformers, and Humanoids showed up in Gem and the Holograms. You know, one of the Inhumanoid you know, members of Earth Corps was, you know, shares a name with Ace. So, you know, somebody from Cops, uh, you know, which is set, you know, in the future is, you know, got the same name as, as Beachhead. So it, it seems like it's all one big universe to me. Uh, not to mention, not to mention a big, uh, a big way to connect all of that is the fact that the character of Hector Ramirez has shown up on Gem, on Transformers, on Inhumanoids, and on G.I. Joe. Well, that, that brings me to my real question. Which is, uh, uh, what, do what are your, your sort of Transformers followers, what do Transformers fans think about you now doing a G.I. Joe book? Because I'm, I, I'm guessing that a few people uh, who aren't really familiar with you are probably wondering why this Transformers guy is writing a G.I. Joe book. Have you, have, you, have you gotten any feedback from any usual people you talk to around any of the Transformers forums or anything? Uh, has there been any talk about you not doing a Transformers book next, that type of thing? Oh yeah, they're they're really jealous that I'm I'm devoting my time to GI Joe. No, I, I think everybody who's uh, taken the time to to speak to me has been either enthusiastic or, at the very least, politely interested. You know, I, I've had some of my regulars on the blogs say, "Oh, it's cool that you're doing a GI Joe book." I'm not much of a Joe fan, and I'm reading between the lines. I'm thinking, okay, well, they're saying that they're probably not going to buy the book. Which is, <laughs> you know, fine if you're not interested. The, the Transformers in fans are just going to have pity for the G.I. Joe fans. Uh, yeah, they're, they're saying, oh, well, we've endured five years of this guy. Now it's your turn. Well, I, that that brings me to, my to uh, I think, a question that... Actually, I, I, this question sort of for everybody here. To, uh, Jim, have you uh, had a chance to look at the, uh, the Transformers G.I. Joe San Diego Comic-Con exclusive crossovers that were revealed at Toy Fair? The, uh, the Shockwave Hiss Tank and the Constructicon Bat. Um, and then also since we're talking about Sunbow um, and we've you sort of touched on the film, uh, have you had a chance to look at the uh, Jinx figures? Yeah, I, I'd seen the chocolate of his tank, but I, I hadn't really seen Jinx. So. As far as the white Jinx, what she reminds me of is this character named Taiko who showed up in the G.I. Joe episode Cobra Quake. Yes, with you the know. Army Builder Storm Shadows. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Like I, The minute that I saw the, uh, the Jinx in white, I was like, like, of all the jinxes that are coming out uh, for retaliation, I would probably want to get my hands on that San Diego white jinx so then I could say, hey, look, I have a Taco figure. I don't know whether or not that was created on purpose or if just in my totally huge, obscure character nerd mind, I, I came up with that connection. To me, she seems like Taco, and, you know, I, I would get it specifically just to have a Taco figure or someone I could say, hey, look, this is Taco for me. If I'm not mistaken, in Marvel, like in her initial appearances, Jinx appears in a white outfit similar to that. I'd have to go look, but I'm pretty sure initially, I don't know if it was a color error or, or what, but she, she has a white outfit 
in a few comics uh, in, in Marvel. But I do see the connection to what you're saying, and, and I thought the same thing, actually. Yeah, she does. Um, a couple of her appearances, she does have, like, a very basic uh, white training outfit. And I think there was one issue where she used a white variation of her combat outfit. In terms of the um, the his tank, you know, the shockwave version of his tank, it certainly looks like a pretty awesome toy. It's probably not what I'm going to be getting, but uh, I'm sort of glad it exists. I just saw the um, you know up close and personal the uh, the Sky Striker, the Starscream Sky Striker with Megatron handgun for Cobra Commander. I thought that was fantastic. You know, there's always the Transformers fans that think crossovers are a bad idea, and there's a lot of G.I. Joe fans that think crossovers are a bad idea. But I was just curious, since now that you're sort of dipped in both worlds, if uh, if you had any sort of opinion on crossovers uh, or even just these toys in general. Well, I, like I said, I think the toys look fantastic. But yeah, in terms of crossovers in general, I feel like it strengthens both universes. I don't think it should be every day. I think, you know, for the most part... If you're doing a Joe cartoon, it should be a Joe cartoon. And maybe there's a nod to Transformers here and there, but that's about it. But in terms of things like merchandise or you know one-shot comics, I think, I think they're a lot of fun. And I think it might bring Transformers fans over to the Joe side that might not otherwise pick up a Joe book and, and vice versa. So I, from a marketing point of view and a creative point of view, I, I think it works pretty well. I was actually talking to a friend of mine uh, before I started doing my show prep for this. I was talking to a friend of mine, and he saw the images of the shockwave hiss. He thought that was really cool. And we were actually tossing back ideas about what if, like, next year for 2013, they did the same thing except maybe use an Autobot character. I'd like to see as a collector, since, you know, I'm more on the Transformers toy side of things, I'd like to see them do what they're doing on the Joe side with the Transformers and, and take existing Transformers molds and paint them up to look more like Joe vehicles. That's that's what would be more likely to entice me to buy something. You know, as far as crossovers go, I've always uh, kind of, you know, one of the things I've always wanted to see would be uh, a Transformers line that was in 118 scale. You know, a, a G1 based, you know, so you get your, your G1 Prowl or your G1 Jazz um, in 118 scale. So, you know, you could, you could keep the lines separate but then they but they could also interact with each other well speaking of that uh to transformers and gi joe uh jim do you want to talk for a second about the uh the cobra sub in your blog uh from when you announced this book and then uh also uh if you could please tell me what disciples of boltax is yeah happily uh well disciples of boltax is the name of the blog where i post transformers animation models and reviews of things that interest me and pretty much whatever else is on my yeah but mind. Who, who's boltax oh um there's a uh, transformers comic where a character named boltax who had disciples showed up it just seemed like a sort of catchy name so i went with ah, it. okay and you know, one the, recently of course i started posting some some joe stuff as well i posted a list of all the different Joe Easter eggs that had showed up in Transformers Animated, which I thought was a lot of fun, and, uh, and, and that Mars Industry sub that you spoke about, which actually I should have um, I should have done my research more carefully, and luckily it's not actually in the book, but, um, but you know, I was re-watching the first episode where they introduced the sub, the Synthoid uh, Conspiracy, part one, and, and Destro complains that if they bought the sub from him, it would have been you know, higher quality. So clearly it's not, in fact, a Mars industry sub. So luckily they didn't put that in print, so I don't have to worry about it too much. Yeah, I I thought it was really neat that this submarine that showed up in quite a few episodes of of G.I. Joe that I I have the actual model for, which is pretty neat and will almost certainly be, you know, finding its way into the book, did then later show up in a Transformers commercial. You know, it was modified a little bit, and I, I posted the, not actually the finalized version of the Joe version, but but an early version of the Joe sub, which is almost exactly the same. It just doesn't have the uh, the design of the, the, the face on the front. And then this slightly different version that showed up in this commercial for the Seacons. And I thought, oh, that's a fun little you know connection between the universes that we actually hadn't seen mentioned before. So I was really proud to be the the guy to discover, and I thought it was a fun way to trumpet the, the the field manual. Kevin, are you still here? Kevin? No, Kevin? Kevin? No? He must have fallen asleep. My friend passed out! Help me get him up! Airtight! What happened? You passed out! Now we know! Alright, so, uh, so Jim, uh, this is gonna be called, it, it's slated to possibly be called the G.I. Joe Field Manual? 
Yes. And uh, it should be available around when exactly? Uh, summer 2012. And uh, if people want to sort of stay up to date on uh, your musings and your projects, they should go where? I would say Disciples of Boltax, boltax.blogspot.com. I assume that you, uh, you'll you answer any questions people have on your blog, or I mean, I assume there's a, a place for that if people have questions and comments and whatnot? Yeah, I mean, generally, if you post a comment on one of the posts, I'll get back to you pretty quickly. Uh, obviously, I can't answer every question that's posted to no. me. Uh, not in terms of time, just in terms of I'm not allowed to talk about certain things and some things aren't set in stone yet. But uh, but generally, if I can't answer the question, I, I'll be happy to. All right. Well, can you can you give us maybe a range on the price for this book at all or no? I would expect it's probably going to be about $20. Oh, that's excellent. That's, that's fantastic. The last four books I've done have all been between 208 and 220 pages and they've all retailed it at 19.95. Well, well thank you Mr. Jim Sorensen for uh, joining us tonight and being uh, our first declassified podcast guest. Well, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah, any anytime you want to anytime you're bored, you know, it's all we're doing some nights depending on what's going on. So, you're more than welcome anytime and uh, obviously uh, we will uh, We'll keep all our listeners updated on everything you're doing uh, as it goes, and probably not even just G.I. Joe. I think we'll cover anything that comes up uh, in regards to your blog and news and whatnot. Um, So thank you very much. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me. And uh, with that, I guess we'll we'll say goodnight. Uh, I'd like to thank, uh, obviously, Jim Sorensen for coming on and uh, taking us through uh, his book and his process and his experience with putting this book together. Uh, I'd like to thank Mr. Eduardo M. Fryer for being uh, our guest host and our uh, sort of uh, sunbow advocate slash uh, expert slash enthusiast. And uh, you know, thank you for inviting me on here and for having to deal with my uh, with my nerdly leanings. Hey, nerdly leanings is what gets the job done. And uh, to uh, to to Glenn Barefoot Jedi for coming on last minute. Uh, thank you very much. Happy to do it. And, uh, yeah, so that wraps up our uh, third episode of uh, Joe Declassified Spec Ops. So thank you again to uh, to Glenn and to Eduardo and, of course, to, to Jim. It was fantastic talking to you. And uh, hopefully we can have you on uh, again sometime, uh, either Sunbow-related or as your book uh, gets closer to uh, release. And uh, Jim Sorensen will be at Rollout Roll Call 3 correct? That's right. So uh, if anyone's uh, attending Rollout Roll Call 3, um, and assuming we have this episode posted in time, uh, by all means, uh, go hit up Jim Sorensen and ask him very annoying questions and get in his face. All right, well, we will will see you all again uh, next week or whenever we record episode four. And uh, I'm Gyre Viper signing off and uh, have a good day, afternoon, or evening, depending on when you're listening to this. Bye. Bye, everybody. JoeDeclassified.com You're listening to Joe Declassified Spec Ops. How do you want me to say that? Spec Ops.